tell the story and and I do love this story in Second Kings um, that was read this morning. Thank you, Dorothy, for reading that. I know I was supposed to be uh, Luke six. Well, we're going to quote from Luke six some sometime anyway. But so anyway, um, the story is Elijah that or Elisha. Um, who brings the enemy troops to the king of Israel, not to be killed, but to be fed and freed. To show compassion, radical hospitality, mercy, and then be sent away grateful and in awe. What are enemies? Misunderstood people, misguided, misled, in our judgment, people who God made in his image also, people who are different from us, look differently, act differently, and behave differently. In the parable about the good neighbor, it was the Samaritan, the one from Samaria, who showed the love and compassion to the injured person. It's interesting that in this story, it's the king of Samaria, Israel, who offered the feast to the enemy army at Elisha's suggestion and sent them home with full stomachs and rested, where before there was anger and fear and prejudice. And now there was compassion and hospitality and mercy. Why? Because Elisha and his faith and his desire to change hearts and oppressions and dispel myths. Jesus is also trying to get his people to see through the prejudice and portray demons to love. want to... Uh, I think this will work. Just you don't need to do anything. I don't think. Well, turn it on. I guess. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and then I will try and do it from here. But you know how that goes. <laughs> um, okay, so I wanted to just show this map, um, and this is the area we're talking about: Israel, and all. All this is Samaria, and if you go over to this map, here's the the capital with the star here, and this is Samaria. Um, Our story is from Dothan down about 12 miles uh, down to Samaria where where Elisha leads the army. They are from Aram up here. So they came down from the north into Samaria. I also want to just point out here that this area here... um, is really central for Elijah and Elisha and Jesus. All their ministries took place right around there. Um, here's Jacob's well, the brook Sharif where, uh, where Elijah went off in the chariot. Um, Salem and Enon where uh, Jesus baptized. Um, Dotham. So here we have... This area, Nain, Nazareth. So all that is actually Samaria. 
Um, it's interesting that, you know, we hear about that and the Jews from Judah don't like Samaria. And, of course, they're down here in Judah at Jerusalem. And, uh, and this path indicates the way Jesus came from Capernaum and Nazareth many, many, many times to Jerusalem through, uh, through Samaria. So, uh, just wanted to point that out by the... Um, so last week, we had um, uh, Elijah uh, leaving in a, in a chariot um, in, of fire. And this week, we have chariots of fire on the hillside. And fire is um, like earth, wind, fire, and water. So it's one of the big power. Uh, and spiritual power is often symbolized with, with fire. And so we have um, those incidences of fire there. Um, so in uh, the spiritual power also... In Genesis 32, when uh, Jacob's vision, when he was fearing uh, Esau, and there was an army of angels on his behalf surrounding them, and they camped there. San Verhim is the Hebrew word for mental blindness. Ha San Verhim. I have that right here. Um, and uh, and it's kind of like the stormtroopers in Star Wars, where they, you know, um, he says, "Let them by because they're they're of no harm, or something like that. They're no threat to us. Let them by." And so the stormtrooper says, "Let them by. They're of no harm to us." <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. Um, it's also the same word that's used in Genesis 19 when Lot's tormentors can't find the door. And you remember in that story, they want to come in and, uh, um, and uh, yeah, brutalize the visitors and they can't find the door because of, um, of their blindness. There's San Brahim. Remember back in Kings, in First Kings, Pastor Dave told us about uh, when God asked Elijah to go and anoint the king of Aram. And we saw Aram. And, and then Ahab went out and he slaughtered all the soldiers from Aram, the whole army. So here, now... King Joram asks Abba, Father, should I kill them when Elijah brings them to Samaria? And Elijah and Elisha is showing the king of Israel that these are also God's people. And they're just from a different tribe. Love them. They are your neighbor. And by the same token, he's sending a message to the Syrian army and their leaders in that these are good people. They fed you and they let you go home, showing that God's grace and peace looks like 
just looking at our short story as Americans, how are we doing with that? We uh, declared war on the Native Americans after they showed us how to live here and planted corn and, uh, and how to fish so we wouldn't starve. Oh, well, yeah, we tried to educate them first uh, in our ways, but they were just too different. So that prejudice ensued, and as it as acted out, became the Indian Wars by pushing them out and killing them off. Well, what... Um, that's what we do with our enemies, right? You create a culture. And the culture says, the only good engine is a dead engine. And anybody that resists that culture is then an engine lover. And that has been portrayed. You know, I, some of us uh, heard a speaker the other day and he was um, a flathead Indian, and he was from Montana. Um, and he said that the history books got it wrong when the boats came and the pilgrims and that came. The Indians said, how long are they going to stay? <laughs> so we just <clears throat> need to add that. <laughs> um, so when the world says we should hate, Jesus says we should love. Do we risk persecution when we go against the world's attitudes and prejudice? Of course we do. We were warned about that. Remember? To stay in safety of com- in the safety of comfort means never really identifying with the marginalized others of humanity. Let me repeat that. To stay in the safety of comfort means never to really identify with the marginalized others of humanity. The black Americans who were slaves and who contributed largely to our economy were hated and demonized and lynched for their differences. Prejudices still continue with some, manifesting myths and hateful lies. Now, we have apologized for these wrongs. On the European continent, prior to the Second World War, Stalin sent 20 million citizens of the Baltic countries to starvation camps and prisons called gulags because they were thought to be anti-Soviet when really their crime was intellectual freedom in writing, painting, poetry, teaching, and yes, they were natives of those countries. They would have been happy to be annexed by the Soviet Union had they been treated with respect. The Jews of Europe during World War II were treated similarly. Six million of them killed by the Nazis. And the surviving refugees 
couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't even land in Palestine without being imprisoned again in detention camps that were operated by the English who occupied Israel at the time. More propaganda, lies, demonizing, myths leading to their death and near extinction of God's chosen people. Listen to this hateful quote and see if you can render an idea of who might have authored it. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejectable, or rejected race of Jews? First, their synagogues or churches should be set on fire. And whatever does not burn should be covered up and spread over with dirt so that no, so that no one may ever be able to see a cinder or a stone of it. Secondly, their houses should likewise be broken down and destroyed. For they perpetrate the same things that they do in their synagogues. Thirdly, they should be deprived from their prayer books and their Talmud in which such idolatry lies and cursing and blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis should be forbidden under the threat of death to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. For they have no business in the real districts. Sixthly, they ought to be stopped from usury. All their cash and valuables and silver and gold ought to be taken from them and put aside for safekeeping. Seventhly, let the young, strong Jews and Jewesses be given the flail and the axe and the spade and the distaff and the spindle and let them earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. To sum up, dear princes and nobles, who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. Any ideas? It was Martin Luther, the great reformer. Twenty years after he nailed his thesis to the door of the church. What have we learned from these atrocities? Anything? The Lutheran church has recanted. And we have apologized for the Native Americans and the blacks. But we recognize the atrocities of our history. And sometimes hundreds of years later, we do a social repentance for these historical unjust acts. And I'm glad for the repentance because repentance means that we are turning from our ways and that we're turning to God's ways until we do it again. When I watch the news of the Syrian refugees, I'm reminded of the trail of tears, the squaws and papooses pulling 
or dragging travois, the Jews leaving Russia, the underground railroad to freedom for the black slaves, the jammed roadways in Europe after the math of the war, the Jewish refugees fleeing on the roads, pulling carts or pushing wheelbarrows or just carrying a knapsack with all their worldly possessions. These are timeless images, indiscriminate of race, nation, continent, or generation. I'm glad that Turkey and Greece are trying to work out some of the passages for the refugees with the EU countries. There is hope if we work together. The Palestinians and the Israels, Israelites or Israelis. Why does there have to be two sides? Many of these Arabs grow up next to the Jews, playing with the children in the same schools, the mothers shopping in the same markets, their families share the same restaurants and the same parks. They're friends. They speak each other's languages. So why do they have to pick one identity that defines them and divides them? They want to live at peace too. Can you recognize the building there in Jerusalem? The gold dome. Everybody knows what that is? What? It's not a mosque. It is the dome of the rock. Um, the mosque is just south of that a little bit. Um, the dome of the rock is a dome protecting, covering, giving holiness to the rock underneath, which is the altar that Abraham took Isaac to. Okay? That's the dome of the rock. It's interesting that when it was built, that both Jews and Muslims worked side by side handing each other materials, trowel in their hands. They built it together so that they could have a place to worship the God of Abraham. They went there for thousands of years together on their knees, praying in a holy atmosphere. They shared that shrine and it was only until recently that Jews have not been allowed. In fact, up until the 20th century, you'd go into a Jewish home for one of their feasts or something, a special dinner, and they would have tablecloths and they would be embroidered and, um, what do you call that? doilies huh yeah crocheted 
There'd be designs of the Dome of the Rock crocheted and embroidered into their holy cloths. They actually wore scarves and stuff that had that on there. And it's only until recently that they would not have that. Do we have a new enemy today? I don't think so. It's been like 1,200 years that we have been fighting with them. I say with because it takes two. But I'm not talking about the radical ISIS. It is uh, much more complicated than that. The persecuted Muslims are the population lacking a home, a place to live in freedom, without being persecuted by other factions of their own religion and by other religions. It's just too much like the Catholic and Protestant wars in the 1500s. And in the 1600s, when the Calvinists were killing the Lutherans, the Lutherans were killing the Baptists, the Baptists were killing the Catholics, and so on. Do we forget? We were once persecuted. When will we stop killing in God's name? God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and his desire is that all should turn to him. Ezekiel 33. He goes on to say, we have no righteousness of our own. And if we think we do, we're wrong. Some Muslims have tried to live in peace in the U.S. Many have been misunderstood and like other people groups that we've experienced. We have developed myths and rumors and the most mostly founded on fear and false information. All this builds fear and Islamophobia with which we judge them. Jesus asks, how can we judge the servant of another master? Yes, there are extreme terrorists. But our tendency is to color them all with the same brush. Ironically, non-believers color Christians all with the same brush. With the brush of fundamental, fundamentalist hate. That's often portrayed by a few. Somehow, justice and mercy need to be a part of our response. When our response is hate and bigotry, we hear Jesus say, why do you persecute me? All three religions claim a true legacy of Abraham. The promise of many nations and each one with one God, the God of Abraham. I have another quote here. Men often hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other 
because they can't communicate. They can't communicate because they are separated. It's Martin Luther King Jr. We can't solve these issues so easily. We're from different tribes. We have different morals, different religions, different traditions, different languages. How do we overcome our fears and our preconceptions? How do we keep an open mind and an open heart? To love individuals as the individual images of God that they are. And not to demonize a whole population so we can justify hating them rather than loving them. Or will our children's children be apologizing and repenting once again in a hundred years? I have a few uh, closing thoughts and a few scriptures. In 1 Samuel 24, Saul acknowledges David's coming kingship with praise of righteousness. Why? Because David did not return evil for evil and he showed him mercy, forgiveness, and kindness. And Saul saw that. Saul repents and having tried to kill David because he realized that David found Saul's life precious. All life is precious. In Acts 9.17, Ananias is in Damascus and Saul, Paul, was blinded and God, by God. And Ananias was thanking God and he was like, yeah, <laughs> we got him. But God said, Ananias, go to his bedside and minister to him. I'm going to use him for good. In Luke 6.35, Jesus says, but love your enemies, do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And Paul quotes Proverbs in Romans 12. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For years, a few years ago, our, our church uh, was interested in a missional approach to evangelism. And we read books and we did some things there. Um, that's really good. And I applaud that. And we should keep doing it. Um, but that was in our backyard. We need to apply that same missional love and outreach to our national and global thinking. Which means that these marginalized and less fortunate, these others, have a place at our table. 
Or better yet, we give them our privileged place of power. Or join them at their table, honoring them, respecting them, and finding God's divine image in them. Seeing with Elisha's eyes and Jesus' heart. And Psalm 23 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 